You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 40 of Distilling Theology. I'm Blake Courtright, and I'm here with my good friend, Justin Van Riper. Justin, how you doing, bro? You know, I have never been more pleased to be surrounded by Presbyterians. Um, That's right, because we are not alone this week. We are joined uh, by some gentlemen from another podcast you may have heard of. It's it's a little you know upstart that uh, hopefully they, they can ride off our coattails this week. Uh, the Mortification of Spin podcast, and we are joined by Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Uh, Carl is a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and Todd is the lead pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks for... Uh, spending some time on our silly podcast tonight. Great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And Todd, thank you. I see you uh, You have a pipe. I do. I wanted to class this joint up a bit. We appreciate it. We affirm. We affirm. Uh, J- Justin, what are we sipping tonight? Because I can't speak French. Uh, yeah, this is a new spirit for us uh, on the show. Courvoisseur, uh, V-S-O-P, or Very Superior Old Pale Cognac. Um, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for this. Uh, why don't you give us uh, the deets on this delicious smelling beverage? Sure. So cognac is a variety of brandy that comes from the cognac region of France. Brandy is just any distilled spirit that's made from fermented uh, fruit juice. So you can have pear brandies, apple brandies. Uh, many brandies are based on grapes. So fermented grapes, you basically have a form of wine and then uh, you're the distilling that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> For our Southern Baptist friends, yes, this is distilled uh, Welches. And uh, the old pale in cognac is a reference to um, a cognac that doesn't have any sweetener or coloring. And this one, uh, it says it's a mix of things that have been aged between 8 to 10 years in French oak casks uh, from the something forests in the vicinity of cognac, France. Limousine forest. There you go. Like the and it's, uh, that's long. <laughs> <laughs> and it's bottled at uh, 40% ABV. And this is a, a favorite of Carl Truman. So, Carl, what do you like about this cognac as we sip a little here? I don't know. It's, it's the whole experience. It's, it's the glass. It's the aroma. It's the taste. It's the connotations for me. I, I tend to have just one cognac a week, yeah. and it's on Sunday evening after, after everything's over. And I'm at my most relaxed before gearing up on Monday to go back to the whole the whole show all over again. So cognac is, is just, uh, it, it's both a great taste and it has so many connotations for me. Mm. Uh, and like Todd, sometimes in the summer, I will partake of a cognac with a pipe. Or if I mm. have a friend around with a cigar, we'll have a cigar. And it's just, it's a very convivial spirit from that perspective. Absolutely. I got, yeah. I got Carl, his first pipe, by the way, I, much to his wife's chagrin, I introduced him to the wonders. <laughs> of- uh, a Savinelli. I'm only allowed to indulge maybe once or twice a year, uh, a sufficient distance from my annual medical so that I don't lie <laughs> to my doctor <laughs> when they ask me if I've been smoking tobacco recently. No, no ninth uh, commandment uh, violations here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm currently enjoying a, a Manischewitz um, uh, cantaloupe wine. That is uh, quite. Uh, I'm sounds, just that sounds <laughs> da- dangerously, dangerously, dangerously pink, but very PCA. No, no. If you don't mind me saying. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sipping on something. I, I made it out of raisins in my bathtub, and so it's, uh, it's quite delicious. <laughs> oh man, Justin, what do you? So Justin has never had cognac before. I've tasted several before. So what do you smell, Justin? Anything? Anything yeah, stand out to you? Because normally we taste scotch in these glasses, but what do you? What do you perceive? Uh, it's, it's very fruit heavy and very fruit forward. Um, yeah. And, and you have like your grapes and like potentially berries. Yeah. Um, it's not particularly strong or overwhelming. You don't get a lot of the same sort of menthol or uh, uh, heavy smell that you get from something like a whiskey or a scotch. Sure. Uh, yeah, bourbon. you pretty much pretty much hit my notes on that. Well, I'd like to taste it and then we'll uh, we'll jump right in as we want to. Very excited for tonight's topic. So, 
Cheers. I get a lot of soap in the stuff I made in my bathtub. <laughs> and so uh, you're not in of, your bathtub while you're making it. <laughs> 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 oh I, I always make a salad while I'm showering because that way I can wash <laughs> the lettuce and stuff at the same time. It's, you know, kill two birds with one stone. It's the it's the water shortages, I guess, in, in mm-hmm, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I've heard about that's that. How that's how you, uh, you you baptize your vegetables. Oh, <laughs> absolutely! Very, very on brand, uh, Justin. You what do you what do you taste on this thing? Um, this very sweet and very smooth. It's um, yeah. it's very. It it kind of reminds me of like a grape sort of jam, uh, or something like that. Very uh, maybe maybe even some strawberry, uh, in there. Yeah. Um, but very smooth, very. Um, very drinkable. This would, this would be very refreshing and very like just enjoyable. I, yeah. I can see why this is a, uh, a weekly, uh, indulgence, uh, here. Did you just, this we don't, night. we don't say that word on this podcast. <laughs> indulgence. This is a reform Papacy podcast. intensifies. Uh, yeah, no, I, I get a, a little bit of like nutmeg or cinnamon at the very back of the mouth too. Mm-hmm. Just that mm-hmm. kind of dry, dry baking spice. And yeah, it's just a very pleasant spirit. And I can't speak across the board for all brandies and cognacs because there are exceptions but because they're usually distilled from fruit they usually don't blend in any grains um if you're someone who's gluten-free and you find difficulties with whiskey uh like some people do have troubles with it if they're genuinely gluten-free um the cognacs and the brandies are a good alternative uh but just make sure that it is actually you know totally fruit and you should be should be good to go carl do you have any any anything you particularly love about this cognac in particular uh, well, it's the price. Yeah, given a choice, I'd go for something more expensive. But this is—it's a nice balance of a reasonable price with a, a very smooth, smooth drink. Sure. Um, and as I say, the glass as well. I always drink from. My wife bought me a nice set of brandy glasses. There's just something rather soothing about rotating the glass, yeah. sniffing it, and then drinking it. It's the whole—it's the whole experience. It's not just the the tasting of of the liquid. Amen. <laughs> We That's affirm. how I feel about my iced coffee in my mug. <laughs> it's the it's the totality of the experience. Yeah, such a PCA guy. To <laughs> no, no. But- no if, if I was if I was that PCA, I'd be I'd be drinking some you know ultra micro brew beer that somebody made in his backyard. I mean, that, that would be. That's true. That's true. Now, I, I should I should make a, m- a mention here as we're we're talking about spirits that I was corresponding with Carl to schedule this episode and. Uh, and Carl had warned me that Todd probably wouldn't uh, imbibe anything with us on the on the spirits end, and I said, "Well, that's a shame, but we can't all be quite as sanctified as our brothers in the OPC." <laughs> and uh, and Carl's reply was that uh, uh, I'm sure he enjoys a good pink Zinfandel. So we're <laughs> I knew we were in for a, an exciting when, episode. Whenever I can get my hands on a good box of of Zinfandel, you know, I, I tap that thing. So. This will be good. We'll we won't be able to have a. a Good, a good share in here. Um, Listen, uh, let's jump in with uh, with a little bit of prayer. That's a good uh, from idea. From the Valley Vision, we all need um, it. <laughs> we have we have, uh, of course, uh, the the most intelligent sounding of the group uh, this evening uh, reading for us. Um, if you have a Valley Vision and you want to read along with us, uh, turn to page two thirty two. Uh, it's about consecration and worship. Um, very excited. Um, love the Valley Vision. If you guys don't have one, please. Please pick one up. Changed my prayer life. Yeah. Agreed. Without further ado. Okay. Should we pray? My God, I feel it is heaven to please thee and to be what thou wouldst have me be. Oh, that I were holy as thou art holy, pure as Christ is pure, perfect as thy spirit is perfect. These I feel are the best commands in thy book. And shall I break them? Must I break them? Am I under such a necessity as long as I live here? Woe, woe is me that I am a sinner, that I grieve this blessed God who is infinite in goodness and grace. Oh, if he would punish me for my sins, it would not wound my heart so deep to offend him. But though I sin continually, he continually repeats his kindness to me. At times I feel I could bear any suffering, but how can I dishonor this glorious God? What shall I do to glorify and worship this best of beings? Oh, that I could consecrate my soul and body to his service without restraint forever. Oh, that I could give myself up to him so as never more to attempt to be my own or have any will or affections that are not perfectly conformed to his will and his love. But alas, I cannot live and not sin. 
Oh, may angels glorify him incessantly and if possible, prostrate themselves lower before the blessed King of heaven. I long to bear a part with them in ceaseless praise. But when I have done all I can to eternity, I shall not be able to offer more than a small fraction of the homage that the glorious God deserves. Give me a heart full of divine, heavenly love. Amen. 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 That was just another level of uh, powerful right there. <laughs> Thank so you. Good. Thank you for reading it's that so good. for us. So this week, right. uh, as we're jumping in, we're continuing talking about covenant theology and we almost on like this sort of joking sense said, well, what if we could get some people who actually talk about, like know this and have some experience outside of our normal uh, banter. And then we had Sam Ranahan on last week to talk about Baptist covenant theology and got these two wonderful gentlemen here to talk about the Presbyterian variety. Um, so I guess that would be my initial question. And this is just to the floor here. What would be the major differences between uh, the Baptist and the Presbyterian covenant theologies? Obviously, there's the, the baptismal issue that people fight over endlessly in Facebook groups. But uh, as we alluded to last week, it, ultimately the issue is beneath that in our, in our covenant theology and how we understand the interaction of the covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you, uh, I guess, Todd or Carl, either way, uh, dis- define those major differences? I think one of the the big differences, uh, and this goes to the heart, I think, of the problem of Baptists and Presbyterians talking to each other, is that the the difference is ultimately one that, well, is not one that can be resolved by a mere exchange of texts in Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, there are texts, if you like, that point both ways. The the ultimate difference, I think, is how you conceptualize the relationship of the Old Testament and and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And in in very simple terms, Baptists posit more discontinuity uh, between those two, and and Presbyterians posit more continuity. So the big difference, I I think, is in some sense is a biblical, theological, or a hermeneutical one that really wrestles with the role of, of the covenants relative to how one interprets the New Testament, how one interprets the Old Testament. Again, one might naively say uh, uh, Presbyterians, I've heard this said by Baptists, interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, and Baptists interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And (laughs) and while that's a a generalization, I I think it's not an unfair characterization of of either side in -hmm. in that debate. It's a hermeneutical, biblical, theological difference, I think, that, that that underlies it. What would you say, Todd? That's exactly, I mean, I was going to, it all comes down to continuity and how much continuity we see. And so you've got some really smart guys like, you know, Sam Renahan and uh, James Dolezal and Richard Barcellus, who would look at the same texts of scripture that Carl and I, or any Presbyterian would look at and, and just disagree about how that should be understood and, and applied. And so it really is a big picture issue. Um, the, the level of, of continuity and discontinuity. And, and uh, uh, for, for me, I mean, I, I, I had to turn into a Presbyterian when, when the level of continuity became very clear to me. You know, I look at these, I look at the sweep of scripture and it looks really, really clear to me. There's some really, there's guys smarter than me that, that look at that and don't, and don't see that. But, um, but yeah, that's what it comes down to. And that's where I, I agree with Carl. We're not going to, we're not going to change each other's minds. I don't think in terms of going, but this passage says this, hmm. um, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a big picture view. It, it, it comes down to our, our hermeneutic as we understand it in terms of biblical theology. That's, that's what it is. I think one thing that I noticed when I jumped into the reformed camp, uh, right out of the gate was, uh, the ability for people who disagreed on certain things to actually be still very unified, uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ and to be able to come together and while well, having these disagreements and really uh, being able to make fun of each other and goof around, uh, but still able to to support each other and, and really get behind each other when they're um, in agreement with something. And, and that's something when I was uh, outside the even the Calvinistic uh, soteriological arena, um, I, I did not see that in a lot of the other denominational interactions I'd had. Um, there was a lot more uh, frustration with one another and infighting with one another. Um, mm-hmm. so it's something that I think is, is both, uh, beautiful and, uh, fun at the same time. And it's something that I think I've seen among other debates. I, I think a good example of that was uh, a debate I saw 
um, discussing the eschatologies, right? The, the three primary eschatological views and how uh, obviously one side or the other is going to be wrong. Uh, when mm. we come into glorification, we re- we come to know the truth. Um, but that despite one of us being wrong, uh, it's still glorifying to God that we're so fervently fighting uh, to see biblical truth and to see uh, what the what the scripture actually teaches um, really very earnestly in, in with really everything that we have uh, fighting uh, to consistently try to uh, to glorify God and, and understand his word better. Um, you know, I think we saw Carl and I have talked about this a lot over the last several years, because when we were going through the um, the big debate over over the Trinity a few summers ago, um, you know, we found such wonderful allies uh, among our Reformed Baptist brothers, mm-hmm. um, guys like James Dolezal and, you know, Stefan Lindblad and Richard Barcelos and those guys were just such a source of encouragement for us. And, and it, you know, and it was clear there, again, um, that that our, our view of, of God, um, for me, is, is if, if, if I'm going to weigh things in terms of what's more necessary for me to have a good fellowship uh, with, with someone, you know, is it their, their understanding of the essence of God or the fact that they're wrong about baptism? Um, and, you know, I, 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 can, I can have great, good, strong fellowship uh, with with guys that I disagree about in terms of the continuity of the covenants, um, if we're talking about the same God, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, Carl, that I mean, we we talked about this a lot. I mean, that was you know behind the scenes through all that stuff, we were getting so much good encouragement from those Reformed Baptists who were, you know, well, you could you could broaden it further and say some of the best stuff on the doctrine of God is written by Roman Catholics, which makes it even more interesting. <laughs> sure. it's a, but sure. I would I would sort of add to what Todd said there and say. You, Two things that I've that I've found helpful in my own Christian life in approaching the issue of baptism is one, uh, remembering that we're all saved despite what we believe as well as because of what we believe. Mm. Yeah, everybody has their heresies or their errors somewhere down the line. And the other thing is I, I've become convinced on the baptism issue that uh, like a number of, of issues in, in Christianity, orthodoxy is, is ultimately... It's the inconsistencies you're prepared to live with rather than the inconsistencies that you can't live with. That I would say that on both sides of the baptism discussion with Reformed Baptist friends, both sides have to face problematic verses. Both sides have to face challenges. And it comes down to which are the challenges that you're prepared to live with and which are the ones that you find impossible to live with. So that probably massively irritates some real hardcore guys on either side. But I'm prepared to say I hold my position firmly, but to an extent provisionally as well, provisionally, because I don't have all the answers uh, on this debate any more than I think uh, a lot of Reformed Baptists have all the answers on on the other side. So I think that leads to the next question, which would be um, something that, because I often find myself defending uh, the Presbyterian position uh, to people who don't know anything about Reformed theology. And when I tell them, uh, or when it comes up in discussion that Presbyterians baptize their children, they go, oh, what, like the Catholics? you know. And so I get that question a lot. Um, so why would you say that uh, Presbyterians baptize their children? Um, I think that's a huge question that just needs to be uh, clearly answered for listeners. <laughs> Well, obviously, it's biblical. I mean, that's the, that's, right. that's, uh, it's the end of the episode, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, that was the first thing I was going to say, we, because we really do believe it's biblical. I would not baptize a child. If I was, I was born and raised yeah, Southern Baptist, yeah, I would yeah. not have left my, my Southern Baptist church in Wichita, Kansas, that I'd served for nine years and yeah. loved if, the, if my conviction on this didn't, was, wasn't grounded in a personal, really strong conviction that this was right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Carl, a, Carl, you take a swing at it and then I'll. Yeah, I was going to say there are a couple of strands. One, I would say that I think infant baptism, from my perspective, I became persuaded that it does justice to the continuity of what I see as the covenant of grace between Old and New Testament. Uh, clearly, the covenant of grace with Abraham and his children. Uh, the administration of that covenant, the outward dimensions of that covenant cover more than just those who are truly of Israel in terms of their faith. Uh, Secondly, I I think there's a dynamic to uh, 
uh, the New Testament that seems to indicate a broadening of the scope of God's grace rather than a narrowing. And it would seem odd to me to narrow the scope of, of, the, uh, of the covenant sign, if you like, in the New Testament uh, rather than broadening it. And then there are p- certain passages that I think are easier to make sense of from a Peter Baptist perspective such as the comments in Corinthians about children being clean because of parents, and also the, the apostasy passages in, in the book of Hebrews. So you know, that's not an exhaustive account, but those are mm-hmm. all factors in my own kind of thinking about this, that I yep. would say, on the whole, I find the Peter Baptist account of more compelling than the, the Credo Baptist account. Mm-hmm. And for all, and for all of those reasons, uh, that's me too. I would I would add to it um, the, the household baptism accounts. Um, every description of a baptism we have, except for the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch who couldn't have a family, every other actual uh, description of, of a baptism, other than Jesus's baptism, and he wasn't receiving Christian baptism. Okay, but every description of Christian baptism, uh, except for the Ethiopian eunuch, is a household baptism. Now. Some of my brothers would say, ah, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you know, say, say the exact ages, you know, these are all people who could have prayed to receive Christ. I think that's really pushing it, um, that insistence, because what, what we have in those accounts is, sounds so much like what we would have in, in the Old Testament in terms of households receiving uh, the, the sign of the, the, the old covenant. Um, uh, I, I believe that Colossians 2 um, helps to answer the question as to whether or not uh, baptism is is the fulfillment of circumcision, so that Paul says, if 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 you've been baptized, you've been circumcised. Um, in in Acts chapter two, Paul is pre- Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and what is he preaching? He's preaching the covenant of, of of grace. He's preaching the covenant with Abraham. I mean, that's what he does. He he stands before the people, preach the gospel, and what is it? He takes them right back to Abraham, and he says, the promise is for you. He's he's standing before. Uh, the, the Jewish diaspora, these people knew exactly what he was talking about when he said the promise, the promise to Abraham. And then um, another compelling thing, and this for me was the final domino to fall. I realized that when I was a Baptist pushing back against covenant pedo-baptism, I, I was asking the same flawed question. And the, the flawed question was, show me the verse where it says, Christians baptize your infants. And, and I saw that, well, no, that's the wrong question. The question must, that must be answered is, where does God tell his people, you must now stop welcoming your children into the visible company of my people by placing upon them the sign? This had defined uh, the life of God's people for over 2,000 years up to that point, um, nationally, religiously, and socially. Uh, you, you can't conceive of a Jewish family at this point that would not place upon their infant son the sign of circumcision. You, it, it would not happen. It so defined them. Listen, if, if, if Peter needed, if, if the people needed a divine vision to no longer abide by the dietary laws, they certainly needed a divine command, a divine division to stop placing on their children the sign of the covenant. And, and back to Carl's point, it seems so odd that in the age of fulfillment after the resurrection, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, that the, that the invitation into this visible community of God's people would shrink. It just seems so odd. But again, um, uh, for me, that, that, that question of silence, where does God say, now listen, my people, I know that I commanded you to do this. And I know that this has defined you in large part for over 2,000 years. But now because of these things, you have to stop doing this. That's the question that my Baptist brothers, I think, have to answer. Okay. So naturally you believe baptized babies are saved, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just get them wet and they're going to hell. Yeah. The thing that I, tell, that I tell my Baptist friends who are confused on this is that any good Presbyterian defi- uh, uh, denies baptismal regeneration as much as a good Baptist does. Yes. Amen. That's good Amen. stuff. Well, speaking of covenants, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. And um, I, in the last episode with Sam, he t- we talked very, very briefly on the covenant of redemption. Um, 
talked a little bit about the covenant of, the work, of works in the garden. And then obviously there's the disconnect, the big disconnect there between Baptists and Presbyterians in where we place the covenant of grace. So Carl, could you give us a, a lead in about a Presbyterian understanding of how, of what the covenant of grace is? Cause I, I, you know, I read Genesis to revelation and I don't see that phrase per se. Uh, yeah. So, and I've, and I've heard that, that as a, as a question to me, you know, where, where covenant of works, covenant of grace, where do you see this in the text? It's right um, next to the word Trinity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think to, to take a step back from the question, of course, there's the question of theological vocabulary. Sure. And by and large, the church has been very comfortable historically with coining terminology that one doesn't find the Greek or Hebrew precise equivalent of in the Bible, but it's a sort of synthetic concept meant trying to capture something of the teaching of the Bible on a particular theme. And you know, the covenant of grace, uh, I give you here the, the definition actually from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which of course lies behind to a large extent the, the definitions that one finds in the, the London Confession of 1689. Uh, it's chapter 7, uh, paragraph 3, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, which were at that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament under the gospel when Christ, the substance, was exhibited. The ordinance in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, good Puritan phrase there, uh, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are therefore not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So essentially what the Westminster Confession is saying there is that, that Christ is the content of Scripture, that the promise to Abraham and to his seed in the Old Testament is looking forward to the fulfillment of that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is a difference between the Old and New Testament in terms of the signs attached to the covenant and the administration of the covenant. The sacrifices of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. Circumcision, uh, depending on your reading of Colossians, but I think Colossians indicates that circumcision uh, is, is transformed into baptism uh, in the New Testament. And uh, the Lord's Supper is one of the, the signs of this. And the primary means of administering the covenant uh, in the New Testament is the proclamation of God's word, calling for those who hear it to respond in faith there too. So the covenant of grace is really simply the reformed way of trying to do justice to the fact that the history of God's people, the history of Israel coming through into the church in the apostolic period, uh, the substance of that history is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and there are ways slightly different ways of, of administering it under Old Testament and, and New Testament. And of course, the big difference with Reformed Baptists is not so much on the existence of the covenant of grace as it is on the administration of that covenant in the New Testament. Is that administration something that is, in a sense, radically new and uh, dependent upon at least outward profession? Of some kind of response of faith. I, I don't think Reformed Baptist brothers believe in baptismal regeneration for believers any more than Presbyterians do for, for children. But is that outward uh, administration, uh, again, connected to, if you like, the bloodline of believers, or is it connected to the profession, the outward profession of involvement in, in covenant by faith? And that's where the difference lies. So in, in one sense, and, and I've said this before, uh, I have 
I'm 90 to 95% in agreement with Reformed Baptists on baptism. The one thing we disagree on is that small thing about to whom it should be administered and, and how much water is involved, which the first is, is by far the more yeah. important issue, I think. Right. But I would certainly say that Reformed Baptists, I think, the ones I've talked to, believe that baptism is an outward sign of the covenant of grace. Right. They don't mm-hmm. believe that it's a way of professing your faith through water, if I could put it that right. way. The yeah, the Reformed Baptists I've talked to... Yeah, the significance... Yeah, like, lies in its connection to the covenant, not so yeah. much in the response to the covenant. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because, as Carl said, you know, if you read London 1689 on, on baptism, it's, it gets real close to, West, to, to Westminster standards in terms well, it, of— it, it plagiarizes the Westminster standards. That's right. We call that taking the rough draft <laughs> and making the final masterpiece. <laughs> 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 yeah. but, but here's where—, here's where you know, capital R, Reformed Baptists, um, the things they say about baptism are, are far more closely aligned to what Presbyterians say about baptism than what Southern Baptists say about baptism. Sure. And because and, where we agree, and this is a huge point of agreement, and Carl alludes to this, is that baptism isn't a thing we do, it's what we yeah. receive. It's not my pledge to God, it's God's pledge to me. God is the agent. God is the right. agent in baptism, right. and I think and that's, that's something on which... We agree with Reformed right. Baptist very mm-hmm. much, very yeah. much. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, we root it in terms of uh, covenant of grace. Of course, you know, for us, we, we go right back to Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. And, and God, when he announces the covenant in those three kind of succeeding, uh, more specifying ways as he goes along, as he's revealing this to Abraham, it's very clear. I mean, God even makes it clear. He doesn't say this is a covenant or a temporary covenant. He calls it the everlasting covenant. Um, so he's very clear that this is an everlasting covenant he's making. He also makes it clear um, that he he seals that, if you like. I don't know if that's the best word to use, but the point is, is that we're introduced there to, to justification by, by faith alone. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The sign, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 17, the sign is what? It's a bloody sign that indicates the removal of sin. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, we see, you know, Jesus written across this. This clearly, you know, by the time we get to Jesus, it seems like it becomes so clear. Oh, Jesus is fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham. And that's why at Pentecost, what does Peter preach? He preaches the covenant of grace. The promise is for you and mm. your children and for those who are all far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call to himself. And, and I think Todd also alludes to something else there that's important. And I think Reformed Baptists would agree with Presbyterians on this, that there's a sense in which a lot of Christians think baptism, it's a, it's a wet profession of faith, and it's unmitigated good news. The language about <laughs> baptism in, in the Bible is, is much more ambiguous than that. Yes. You know, Jesus talks about, you know, I have a baptism with which I've got to be baptized and how you know, how ill at ease, how distressed I am until it's fulfilled. Uh, circumcision. I remember when I was reading the Bible to my kids, the first time they came across circumcision, they said, hey, Dad, what's that? So I think <laughs> Go I, ask your mom. I said, yeah, I, I defer to my wife to explain it. And they said, oh, Dad, that sounds like torture. Well, that's, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Circumcision, in some ways, is a little taste of judgment. Mm. And one of the things I think that any good biblical theology of baptism has to take account of is the fact that baptism isn't just a pointer to grace, it's also a pointer to judgment as well. Uh, And that, I think, is something that that isn't captured in a lot of Baptist, or even a lot of popular Peter Baptist theology, to be honest. Uh, But a good biblical theology of baptism understands that baptism, it's not just a promise to you, it's also a warning. That's right. It's a warning about judgment as well as a promise of grace. John, John Fesco's big book on baptism uh, does a great job of bringing that out and yeah. again showing that, you know, um, the, the days of Noah, that was a, that was a baptism. Um, and we're even helped to make that connection in the New Testament. And, and so this promise of God that is attached to baptism is that when this sign is met with faith, there will be salvation and blessing. If this mm-hmm. sign is met with unbelief, there will be judgment. And the waters, as they did in the past in biblical history, the waters in that case represent the waters of God's judgment. Mm. Well, I guess, uh, so 
that might lead to another question or another accusation that I've heard a lot uh, of of Presbyterians being uh, monocovenantalists. There are some Presbyterians who are monocovenantalists. If they are monocovenantalists, then then they have departed from the Westminster standards because the Westminster standards are are certainly not monocovenantal. But but like if if you, uh, Michael Williams, who's a systematic theologian at Covenant, Theological Seminary. He's a monocovenantalist. I disagree mm-hmm. with him. I think he's wrong about it. He's written some good stuff, but he's wrong about that. Sure, yeah. sure. No, I, I certainly say I'm a monocovenantalist in terms of the covenant of grace. One covenant of grace. All the New Testament. Yes. But uh, I don't see that a commitment to the covenant of grace undermines my commitment to the covenant of works or the covenant of nature or the covenant of creation, whatever term you want to use for right. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say. Certainly, there are those within the Reformed tradition who, who fall into that category. I, I think possibly more in the Dutch Reformed tradition because the, the covenant of works is not so explicit, it seems to me, in, mm. the, in the three forms of unity as it is in the, uh, the Westminster standards. Though I would want to argue that it is conceptually there, even if it isn't explicitly there. That, that's a debate right. for another day. Yeah, and John, you know, John, the, I was John say, Murray, the, go ahead. Yeah, John Murray gets it hopelessly wrong. He doesn't understand medieval theology. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Murray had many great strengths, and they're by and large found within the covers of his commentary on Romans. If I yeah. that way. <laughs> well, you know, he, he, yeah. he didn't like the term covenant of works because that, and, and this is what confuses me about Murray, because he, he was smart enough to know that, you know, the, the, word, fa- you know, the, the word fallacy uh, word concept, you know, yeah. fallacy. Um, but but he didn't like to use the term covenant of works because that term wasn't used. And yet you start reading as he describes it, and it seems like he he acknowledges that you know to use Carl's term, you know, conceptually it's there. Well, yeah, yeah conceptually sure. it's there. It certainly is. I think John Murray is a good example of how you shouldn't really tinker with the language because you can actually open the door to things that they were originally trying to exclude. I, I don't think John Murray actually is particularly deviant on the covenant of works. I think no. he's, mis- he's linguistically mischievous. <laughs> <laughs> linguistically oh, mischievous. Boy. That's a good term. So, you know what uh, else is linguistically mischievous, Justin? I like that. Theonomists. Yes. I get, well, all my, I get all my best phrases from Truman. I'm, I'm so, stealing that one. Well, yeah, like Blake just alluded to. So, um, Several weeks ago, uh, uh, closer, I mean, it's got to be over maybe a month now, um, I had abandoned the, uh, the idea of theonomy as being biblical. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> Amen. Um, and then I started theonomists. joking. I, well, it's because I embraced uh, 1689 federalism. Oh. And, uh, and because, of the, because of the view of covenant theology, that, well, that was one of the primary things that made it impossible for me to, to reconcile theonomy with uh, Baptist federalism because uh, it just doesn't comport. And so yeah, you, you use the wrong formula, but you got the right answer somehow. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, well, that I, I joked to Blake afterwards. I was like, ha, huh, you're closer to being a theonomist now than I was. <laughs> um, so why aren't Presbyterians or at least Westminster adhering Presbyterians theonomists? Carl, take a swing at that one. <laughs> I don't know a whole lot. I, I was asked in my presbytery exam, what do you think about theonomy? <laughs> to which my answer was, I don't think about theonomy. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me a remarkably American form of Christianity. Mm. I, I think uh, the reason why I'm not a theonomist is that I do not confuse the church with the world in general. And I think mm-hmm. that's the key issue. Yeah. Uh, uh, part of the problem, of course, is when you're looking at a 17th century text like the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're dealing with a very different, what Charles Taylor calls a very different social imaginary in those days, sure. where the, the kind of distinctions that we routinely make, and I think appropriately make in a, a kind of post-Jeffersonian world, for want of a better term, playing to my American audience, <laughs> simply didn't apply in the 17th century, which make, make it somewhat muddy and hazy to sort of demand that the 17th century answers the political questions of today. But I think the bottom line is, I don't confuse uh, the church with the world in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read my Westminster standards really through the lens of Augustine and the two cities, uh, through an understanding that, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. 
through an eschatology that gives me extremely limited, if not non-existent hope for the, for the ultimate ability of this world to kind of be transformed prior to the second coming of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say theonomy may dress itself in covenantal language, but it mm -hmm. actually presupposes a host of other ideas in order to read the covenants in that in that particular way sure yeah agreed uh, but i would also you know uh, if, if people want to so, so one of the things i think that, that theonomists are, are confused on is um uh, the, the 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 proper division of of the mosaic law yeah the, the moral law the civil law and the ceremonial law and i, I again conceptually the, those divisions seem very clear to me uh, that, that that they are there in fact if, if you want to read i think one of the most helpful things i've ever read on on this um because again i think that this is one of the roots of the error of of theonomy uh, a book by philip ross called from the finger of god the subtitle is something along lines about you know basically a, a defense of, of the threefold division of the law i think there if you get that right um, I just don't see how you can be a theonomist. And, I, and, and Ross, in his book, I think, demonstrates convincingly that that threefold division, if you have God's everlasting moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments, and you have his ceremonial law, which, which structured the, the religious life and, and cultic practices of, of God's people um, under Moses, um, which were all temporary signs pointing in, in one way or another to the person who was in Christ. Yep. And then you have the civil law, which functioned for, for a while as God's people lived uh, within the land. And, you know, and, 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 and really instinctively, we sort of know this. We know, for instance, that there is a, a fundamental difference between, um, a, 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 you know, have no other gods before me and don't eat shrimp. You know, we, we just know that there is a, a substantive fundamental yeah. difference between yes. those two things. And that's proved by the time we get to Acts. And and the dietary laws are are are, are done away with, et cetera. Um, and, so women and, can serve in combat. Is that okay then, Todd? <laughs> <laughs> I'm blowing um, you. You're a closet theonomist, man. I'm blowing <laughs> cover here. So. This, yeah, yeah. Women women cannot serve in combat because of the, the, the fundamental. Um, a flaw in their nature, which okay. is can they call. can they eat shrimp? Wait, wait, a, wait a second, <laughs> Todd. Are you just? I thought you were part we've of the had, feminist army. I'm very confused now. <laughs> I'm very confused now. Oh my goodness! No, those are those are great answers, and and basically the same kinds of things that I said less intelligently and less uh, Britishly to uh, Justin. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the thing about Truman. Truman could read Truman could read the phone book, and people would go, oh. <laughs> Oh yes! Oh, hey, he's so good. The trouble: every English accent in a Hollywood movie is always an evil person. It's, <laughs> it's the last acceptable form of yeah. racism in America. Right. It's right. anti-English. Yeah, it, it's like giving English accents to the Nazis in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> All the Russians here, in twenty-four. Here's here's what I'm convinced of. I, I I didn't meet Carl until after he supposedly moved to the United States. My theory <laughs> is that he was born and raised in Wildwood, New Jersey. And he actually talks more like Snooky um, than, than, than a genuine uh, English accent. I think it's all oh, cool. I'm a Guido, yes. <laughs> so I'm, from uh, now on, I'm going to call him the situation. That's amazing. You heard it here, folks. So get ready for uh, the next week on Mortification of Spit. Uh, casual conversation about things that matter. All right. Um, so we, we talk about the language of administrations uh, mm -hmm. in, in Presbyterianism. And I hear Baptists... And Sam brought this up last week, mm. uh, who went to Westminster, talking about he, he sees the phrase administration as problematic. He sees it as kind of it, the language he finds insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. To he, he sees it as like we're covering a bunch of problems and we're not really like we just kind of, you know, we talk about Kleinians and non-Kleinians. Everyone just throws administration around. Um, so how would you how would you describe administration of the covenant of grace? Um, and do you think it's a cop out? <laughs> Well, I, I wouldn't want to load it with too much, too much freight in some ways. Well, yeah, administration is just the way the, the covenant of grace is administered in the present time. And mm -hmm. but Baptist, Peter Baptist, you, you've got to have rules for the outward administration of the covenant because 
no Baptist has any more access to the book of life than any Presbyterian does. And a Baptist administers the covenant of grace by saying, well, if somebody makes a credible profession of faith, then we will administer the covenant signed to them. That's a provisional judgment. That's part of how the, the covenant is administered in, in, a, in a Baptist context. So I would say the language of administration, it, it could be used as a cop-out by, by some. I, I'm sure it, you know, it might be an easy way of trying to derail discussion. But bottom line is all churches administer the covenant of grace in some way. The big question is, is the way we administer it biblical or not? Mm. Is it justifiable from Scripture? And you know, Baptists have to accept the fact that their administration of the covenant doesn't involve them reading the mind of God. It's based on outward human circumstances in the same way that a Peter Baptist uh, application administration of the, of the covenant of grace is based on outward human circumstances. When I baptize a baby, am I saying this child is guaranteed to make it into heaven? No, I'm not. When a Baptist pastor, when Sam baptizes a congregant coming forward for membership, is he saying by baptism, this guarantees that this person is going into heaven? No, he's, he's saying, on the basis of my understanding of Scripture, I have a good provisional hope that this person might make it to heaven, and I have good scriptural warrant for performing the action I'm performing now. And based on their profession of faith. Yeah. Yeah. which I can't see into their heart, but based yeah. on their profession of faith. So and, I think and, the debate is not so much about the language of administration so much as what kind of administration is is warranted by Scripture. If I could put and, I, and, I, and Yeah, and I think that that's how we understand uh, that, that word as it is used in terms of the, quote, administrations of the covenant of grace, the, 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 the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant in Christ. Again, we, we are convinced that there's one covenant of grace, and that when we get Sinai, God is not instituting a new covenant, but he is reaffirming um, in, a, in, a, in another formal covenant ceremony the covenant of grace that he's already made. Now, there are dimensions added to it, maybe not so much, well, yeah, added to it, but, but more revelation of that. In, in, sure. you know, in the case of Sinai, the, the people's obligations, the covenant of grace does not mean that there are no obligations from the object of grace. And, and that's one of the things that, that Sinai tells us. And I don't think that the administration of the Mosaic Covenant is, is a, um, a, a recapitulation of the covenant of works, as Meredith Klein affirmed. Uh, uh, because before, what does God do before he gives, and, and the standards help us understand this, Westminster Standards, what does God do before he gives the law to Moses? He reaffirms, you are my people, I saved you, I delivered you. Um, once again, uh, declaring his grace towards them. We get to the Davidic covenant. And again, it's about grace. It's God's promise. This is what he's going to do. And, and, and it's out, and it's out, as Carl made earlier, it's outworking, it's in fleshing in human circumstances. So administration, in terms of how we understand the, the, the covenant of grace as being administered under Moses, administered under David, and then fulfilled finally in the new covenant in Christ, that's just a... a, a you know, a word that helps us uh, understand and navigate what's going on there so, so that we go, well, no, God's not making a brand new covenant with Moses that replaces the covenant with Abraham. That's not what it is because that's the everlasting covenant of grace that Jesus fulfilled and the apostles preached. So what's going on with Moses? Well, administration of the covenant of grace is a good way to describe it. Um, you know, I mean, Carl... Am I making sense? I mean, would that be? You're making as much sense as you always do, Todd. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. I find you as convincing as ever, if I could put it in a very English way. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> well, that, kind of one, one final question as we, as we come towards the close here. Um, how do Presbyterians understand the relationship of Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church? Presbyterians have disagreed on that to some extent. Um, uh, in, in terms, I mean, uh, at the most basic level, the New Testament church replaces Old Testament Israel. But there are strands of Presbyterian thinking, particularly strong in Scotland. I was uh, ordained as a ruling elder in the Free Church of Scotland over uh, 20 years ago now. And in the Free Church of Scotland's tradition, the conversion of the Jews at the end of time 
is a key part of uh, of the mission exercise of of the denomination historically going all the way back to Robert Murray McShane I was going to say McShane uh, in in That's the 19th just... century so i think uh, presbyterians th there's a variety of opinion as there is a, in baptist circles on the the continuing status of the Jews, and there's a strong strand of Presbyterian thinking that that doesn't think the Jews are simply passed over, replaced, thrown out because the church has come in its place. No, there will be a a grafting on of the ethnic, uh, a, a section of the ethnic Jewish people mm -hmm. at the end of time. I happen not to hold to that view myself, but that is a is a a hallowed position, honoured within the the confessions, and certainly one that I would have tremendous respect for, even while mm. I'm not quite yet persuaded that that's what, what Paul is teaching. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. And I, again, I, I like the language of Westminster, which refers to Israel as the Old Testament church. You know, and again, if you look at uh, the, you know, just linguistically, you know, uh, uh, how, how Israel was, was described in the Old Testament is, is the Hebrew word for, for gathering. And then when we get to the New Testament, Ecclesia, uh, you know, the church is, is the gathering of God's people. I do believe that the, you know, I, I, I hate the phrase uh, replacement theology. That's a pejorative yeah. and a misunderstanding yeah. Yeah. of it. Uh, no, we don't believe that, uh, that uh, you know, replacement is not a good word. Fulfillment is the better mm. word. And again, it seems yeah. to me that just harkens back to God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to make of you a nation made up of all the peoples. Uh, his kingdom is not about one ethnicity or one piece of real estate along the Mediterranean. It's always from the very time of his covenant with racism. Abraham. Exactly. <laughs> it, from, from, from the covenant with, with Abraham. Mm -hmm. um, Israel has always been a foretaste of a worldwide company of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. That said, I, I do, and I, I think Carl communicates this a little bit, I, I am moved by the things I've read about Robert Murray McShane and his commitment to a ministry throughout Palestine to reach out to Jews. It was driven very much by this idea that Christians ought to have a very warm heart for yeah. Jews, if for yeah. no other reason, you know, than reading. And, and I, I, I'm very attracted to that, whether or not it means exactly what some Presbyterians believe that there's going to be an end times in grafting of a vast number of Jews, which I, would, I hope that does happen, and that'd be wonderful. Mm. But 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 the impulse towards longing to see that I think is a good thing. Mm. That makes sense. That's really good. Hey, the and, more uh, the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. The more people. Yeah. Come Lastly, can you guys help me turn my uh, co-host into a Presbyterian <laughs> per my initial email to uh, we're here for. to That's Carl? What we're here for. <laughs> it's actually an intervention. That was my my email subject line to Carl was uh, help me turn help Todd Pruitt and I turn my Baptist co-host into a Presbyterian. <laughs> well, this is this is what this is Carl's and I view. The, the Baptists win us to Christ, and then the Presbyterians improve our theology. So, you know. well, the Baptists oh. preach better generally as well. <laughs> we do have the Prince of Preachers. Yes, that is true. very true. I have, true. A, I have my Spurgeon medallion on yes. my desk to remind me of that. I, I, have, I have a portrait of yeah. Spurgeon over my desk at, at, at my office at church watching over me. I just got my Spurgeon study Bible, and it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's wonderful. So could you gentlemen recommend uh, some further reading for our, our listeners uh, on this topic? If somebody's heard this and they're thinking, wow, covenant of grace, covenant of works, administrations of the covenant of grace, uh, yeah. paedo-baptism, my head's spinning, uh, and I want to know more, yeah. what would be the best places that you think people should start to, to dive into here are, this? Here are my two go-tos, um, and there's a number of really good ones, but my, my top ones are um, Sacred Bond. Um, by Brown and Keel, Sacred Bond. That is a thin, readable book. I, in terms of an introduction to covenant theology, mm. I can't think of a better one to go to. And then more specifically on the issue of paedo-baptism, a book written by a former Southern Baptist who's now a Presbyterian. And I forget his name, but you'll be able to find the book on Amazon. It's called um, Infant Baptism, and the silence of the New Testament. Again, fairly thin, but of all the things I've read, and there are some really good introductions to, to, to covenant baptism, this is the best one I've read. And it, I forget the author's name, but it, you can get it on Amazon. It's called Infant Baptism and the Silence of the New Testament. I, 
we have former Baptists in, in the church I serve that are now uh, covenant pedo Baptists because they read that book. Brian Holstrom. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's it. I would recommend uh, Danny Hyde's mm-hmm. a little book, mm-hmm. Why We Baptize. I think I can't remember if it's Why We Baptize. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Jesus Loves the Little Children, Why it's We excellent. Baptize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the one we would give out to uh, when I was a pastor to people just making inquiries. Uh, and at a more sort of substantial level, I think Todd's already mentioned it, John Fesco's book yes. uh, on uh, Word, Water, Spirit, mm-hmm. which is a study of baptism. And that's a, I, I would say that's a good book on baptism generally because yes. it contains some very good historical sections. You know, if you're a Baptist, you'll enjoy this book because mm-hmm. it's a good history of baptism apart from anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John is... Uh, I think John is probably about as compelling as anybody on the, on the issue of, of infant yes. baptism, but mm-hmm. it's a good book to have on the history of baptism right. period. So yeah. those would be the two I would recommend. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the, the, the Fesco book I bring out is the howitzer, yeah. you know, if, if, you know, because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's thicker and, and for good reason. And, yeah. you know, if, if you can get through Fesco and say he's yeah. just wrong, I'm going, well, yeah. okay, try my and, best. And this man doesn't read many books without pictures. So he's got <laughs> right. Fesco. That tells you something. <laughs> so. I, I I love reading uh, for, from from my Pato Baptist brethren. I mean, we're reading through Bovink right now, and he's yeah. just absolutely uh, a, a bombshell. I mean, he's just yeah. unbelievable. Um, I just got the James Eglinton book arrived. Yeah. 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 today, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you guys can also go to 1689federalism.com. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was wonderful. I, I would say John Gill, from a Baptist mm. perspective. Mm. You know, John Gill is, yeah. is a remarkable yeah. theologian for a lot of reasons, but you know, for a strong, strong uh, Baptist case, John mm-hmm. Gill and, and some of his, his tracts and treaties are, are very, yeah. very pungent from that perspective. Oh, that's, this is all good stuff. Well, thank you guys so much. And, uh, to our listeners, if you guys want to hear more of Todd and Carl, they host co-host a weekly podcast called Mortification of Spin, though I suspect if you have heard of our podcast, you've probably heard of and listened to theirs. Uh, so go be sure to check that out. Where else can people connect with you gentlemen uh, and and uh, get you in their social media feeds, as it were? Carl is all over social media. What is social media? You can't keep him off the thing. He has like three Facebook accounts. One just for pictures of his kittens. I, 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 keep getting, I keep getting emails from people in my church saying, I'm so sorry what's being done to you on social media at the moment. I, like, I have no idea what's being done to me. So it must be a very peaceful, it, sure. peaceful life. Well, and, and Todd, didn't you recently leave Twitter? I officially? quit Twitter and it's made me Praise happy. the Lord. Mm. I never joined. Twitter. I couldn't get on the train. Yeah. Somebody too, told too me much. our our Twitter for the podcast is um, out of date on the description. I said, well, "That's that's bad. Too bad to know because uh, I haven't been on it since we set it up a year ago." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just don't have too the, much poison uh, on there. Too much poison yeah. on there. But I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Facebook. People want to. If people want to, you know, do that. And I know. Um, I mean, Carl. Even though he's an international celebrity, he's actually not hard to get a hold of, and so, um, and and uh, he he tends to correspond with people who correspond with him. Unfortunately, Grove have put my email address on the website, so I do get some interesting emails. These I mean, you got mine, so I, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I I tend to spread it around to the people who hate him most on Twitter. Right? I, I, that's good. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you guys again so much for spending some time with us. This has been pleasure. one of my favorite yeah, episodes uh, to date. I really enjoyed hanging out with the older version of ourselves uh, and the more wise. <laughs> we, and we need you guys on mortification of spirit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we and, would and, love and, to. Although, although we don't have, we don't have, I mean, we have coffee mugs, but we don't have nearly as good a swag no, as you guys have. No. That's okay. Uh, the, the, these guys, um, they sent me a really cool uh, rocks glass with uh, I got the their, same their, today very with, very nice mm-hmm, with Thank their you. their uh, logo embossed on it's very cool. I told my wife I would divorce her if she smashed it like <laughs> <laughs> wow oh, man it's some high praise <laughs> you heard it here folks well, That's how they uh, joke in England. You know. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Uh, please don't forget to visit our uh, online store, shopdistillingtheology.com, where you can get uh, the glasses that we talked about potentially in the future sometime. But right now you can get uh, awesome uh, mugs that have uh, quotes from the wonderful works of God by Herman Bovink on them. We have a trilogy of mugs, if as it were. Um, uh, so go ahead and check that out uh, right now. 
Uh, you can also get in touch with us at just distillingtheology.com. From there, you can get links to our Facebook page. Uh, so if you go on Facebook, you just search Distilling Theology as well. Uh, we have a Facebook group and a Facebook uh, page. Like the page, join the group. We have a ton of fun. It's a blast. We also have an Instagram. Oh, so, uh, yeah. It's at Distilling Theology. Definitely check us out there um, if you want to see awesome pictures of books and distilled spirits. Uh, if you want recommendations for what to read, you can go there because you can see what we're reading. Um, and we're certainly not going to put on there uh, books that we would not recommend. <laughs> Better take down uh, your best life now. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, uh, man. Uh, yeah. You know what else is going on right now, Justin? Please We're still running a giveaway of Dr. Samuel Renahan's book, hey. The Mystery of Christ, His Co- Kingdom and His Covenants, as well as Distilling Theology, Glenn Karen Glass. So go over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway. Uh, that is running through Friday the 25th. So you still got a few days left to enter uh, to do some more entries by sharing it with your friends. So get on it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, also, <laughs> if you want to get additional content oh. from us... And you want to get additional pictures of us by seeing our face as we Whoa. speak. Uh, and get the podcast totally unedited, uh, raw, and uh, undistilled, as it were. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Just the fermented mash. Yes. Go to patreon.com slash distilling theology. Uh, you'll get a bunch of extended conversations, tons of bonus content. Like we had a two and a half hour conversation with Sam Renan. And mm. it was awesome. That's all available at Patreon. Um, so go there. We also, uh, if you join Patreon, you'll also get discounts on our Distilling Theology store. Uh, so please, uh, if, you, if you're interested in a mug, consider joining Patreon uh, and get yourself, save yourself some money on those mugs. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get Man. the episodes as soon as they're released because we yep. live stream them oh. right to our Patreon account. Uh, so again, that's one of the reasons they're totally unedited because you're getting them quite literally as as we record. That's right. This um, episode actually aired a week before it showed up on the main podcast. Sure so did. there's that. <laughs> now, what levels can people join us at, Justin? Yep. Uh, if you join us at the four ninety nine a month level, um, you will get all the content I just talked about. And if you join us at the fourteen ninety nine a month level. Uh, after your first three months, you will get an m- exclusive patron-only mug, oh. uh, and there will be additional content on top of that, including some upcoming video productions, as it were, Ooh, uh, yeah. which is going to be really awesome. So join us there and uh, enjoy the content. We hope um, we hope you guys join the Distilling Theology family because literally you guys make this possible for us to do this Amen. on a weekly basis, uh, yeah. despite the fact that we work full-time jobs yeah. and uh, have families and other things that we have to do. So Indeed. And also to that point, it's what's been able to to allow us to send merchandise and and gifts to our guests, uh, which they very much appreciated, which is awesome. So we're grateful for all of that. It's what's going to ultimately what help help us get the online store going, uh, mm-hmm. and what will help us get the glassware out to you guys because we we are working on it. It is happening. Keeps uh, our website tuned. up. Keeps the store. Up. Amen. It's good stuff. It's and you guys. You guys are the ones that we're grateful for. The Patreons are the best. Now. Uh, after these last two episodes, I feel very confident that we are still proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. This is a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective, and we, were rec- we would recommend all of them. These include Assurance of Pardon, The Bobcast, Christ in Context, Fast God Stuff, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. Guys, if you want more content all week long, if you want to hear podcasts from a Reformed perspective with a wide variety of voices and you don't ever want to run out, go to reformedpodcasts.com so that you can subscribe to this mega feed and have an endless flow of doxological and theologically sound content. Uh, We really Mm. appreciate it, and we're glad to be among such good brethren. And like I said, between last, like, I don't want to say that we had the definitive episodes on covenant theology but the we last did. two weeks, but we kind of did. <laughs> uh, uh, our, our guests have been amazing. We're, we're seriously blown away and, and grateful for uh, Sam for his time and for Todd and Carl for their time. It's been absolutely wonderful. Now, Justin, what are we talking about next week? It'll just be us again. So uh, strap in. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about hamartiology. Oh, Justin, uh, what is that? <laughs> it's a branch of Christian theology, uh, which is the study of sin. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Which would be a good follow-up from our last uh, episode, um, sort of in the stream of systematic theology, yeah. uh, is man a bad guy? Mm. Uh, so check that episode out if you want to hear 
uh, our lovely part-time co-host Eric Jett uh, talk a whole lot and make us seem really dumb because he's really smart. He is, despite saying, I don't know anything. I'm just going to be the hype man. I'm just going to drop tasting notes on the whiskey throughout the episode. And then the entire episode, he's spitting straight fire. Uh, yeah. What are we going to be sipping while we speak about such sinful things? Oh, we're going to be tasting <laughs> Templeton Maple Cask Finish Rye. This was voted on by our Patreons. So again, shout hey, out. Uh, we appreciate you guys helping us out and, and giving us some good content there. Uh I have not tasted this before. This was sent to us actually by one of our Distilling Theology admins, uh, Stuart, so we're very grateful for that. Um, And now we'll go back into the ending episode where we convinced Todd and Carl to do our outro with us. That's wonderful. Well, we were wondering, actually, uh, so we do this outro where we quote Paul and we conclude with Soli Deo Gloria, and we were wondering if you guys would read it with us. I posted it in the little Zoom chat there. Uh, so you can awesome. take a look and, and let me know yes or no. And if so, we'll, we'll, we'll roll out together here. <laughs> sure. All right, Blake, lead us in. Yeah. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Uh, did you I, click on your chat? I, so I haven't Bro. clicked on my, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll start over. We'll start over. Do all to the glory from, of God and remember to, and remember to click on your chat. <laughs> <laughs> This is awesome. All right. Uh, it's just Soli Deo Gloria sorry. at the very end. So we'll, Okay, Soli Deo Gloria. Yeah, sorry. Right. I should we'll have roll it again. All right. Uh, so thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Distilling <laughs> Theology, featuring uh, the gentleman from Mortification of Spin. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Praise the Lord. Enjoy this sneak peek from the full version of this episode, available exclusively at patreon.com slash distillingtheology. I bet in the history of the church, there hasn't been such a fun discussion of baptism as we think we may disagree yeah. for many it's centuries. True. True. We, we may, this, this episode may end up on a, on a, you know, a daily devotional church history calendar type thing. <laughs> Valley of Vision Volume yeah. 2. I think, I think we're there, man. The, the day they really got it right. <laughs> the day they figured it out.